We're going to be reading from 18 through 29, okay? Hebrews chapter 12, 18 through 29. I love the sound of all those pages turning. Okay. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the heavens beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches a mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warmed them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. These words are God's words. Great, great. Thank you, Steve. Our little ones, you guys are dismissed for junior church. So, as they, all right, as those guys are, are going, first of all, I just forgot I mentioned, I know some of you, uh, Peter, Peter gave me a good uh, joke last week. He said, I was concerned for you because I was wearing a suit last week and he thought maybe my jeans had to go to the cleaner. And uh, they're, they're back. They're back this week. And uh, so, I, the, the ultimate goal in the way that I dress on a Sunday is to keep everyone guessing so that there's no dress code at this church. So uh, you'll just have to wait and see what I wear next week, I guess. But um, that is a goal. It is something because we know it's really not just about our clothing. Instead, it really is about uh, what Jesus has done. I wanted to uh, just draw together again. I'm so thankful for what, what Scott shared and what Don shared. And I hope you see the tie-in between those two things that... We are excited about the way that God is providing here and the way that he has provided through you generously, but also to see how generously God is also supplying in areas that that we don't see. I know so many of you have been so involved in other people's lives, giving sacrificially, and it doesn't get mentioned. It doesn't go through any books. Nobody knows about it except for Jesus, and Jesus is really glorified through the way that you do that. And... um, 
it's just an exciting time for us. Some of you are giving. Uh, I'm thinking of some of our families that are down in Haiti. So let's remember to pray for some of our parents who are adopting and they are down um, there. I know uh, Sue Simons is down there right now. I know that um, uh, Nancy Dunphy is is also there. And I also know that Casey and Jesse are there. Uh, did I forget anybody who's down there on this trip? Okay, I think that's the guys from our group. But keep praying for them, these parents who are adopting and, and longing to have their kids home um, with them. So there's, there's plenty that we can be uh, praying for together. Let me just rem- uh, also mention this just briefly. Uh, we're going to finish up Hebrews. I know it, it, it seems impossible, but we are. And we're only really about three weeks away from that. I just want to give you a little hint about where we're heading next. And what we're going to do is we're going to begin there, um, I think it's February uh, 20th, somewhere right around there, 19th, maybe it's the 19th off the top of my head. We're going we're gonna to go into a new series, and it's, and it's a different type of series. In essentially 10 weeks, we are going to cover the entire story of the Bible. Now, I, I, yeah, I feel the same way. It's a, it's a, it's a quick, all right? We're going to take a biblical theology and just run straight through. This is what the Bible is all about. Why I mention that to you is we're going to do it in, in a sort of a different way. It's going to be way more conversation with you rather than just me preaching okay so so i'm going to just prepare you for that i'm going to get you to think through that i want you to just be prayerfully uh preparing yourselves for that series the awesome thing is that on week seven we're going to get to the cross and that'll be uh we're going to that'll be easter sunday morning on on that week seven about the resurrection notice that there's three more weeks after the cross sometimes we think that christianity ends there it doesn't there's a whole lot about the future that also goes on out of those 10 weeks. Here's another reason why I mention it. Many of you have friends and neighbors, people that you love, people you're connected to, who, um, who you are, are introducing more and more to Jesus. This could be an opportunity for them to come. It could be a chance to invite them to be with you during this series. If you said to them, you know what, in 10 weeks, if you just want to get a sense of what the Bible's about, we're going to go through that. And it's not going to be so much lecture as it's going to be interaction. There's, there's, um, you know, uh, we're going to be going through, through that together. Feel free to invite them, okay? This could be an opportunity for them to come and interact and learn more about the Bible than they know right now. So that's our plan. That's where we're headed. And then we'll get to where we're headed after that later on, okay? Let's, uh, let's just gather our hearts together and pray and just ask Jesus for help today as we go to his word. Father, we do love you, we need you, and we trust you. So we're asking you through your spirit to work here deep inside of us, especially on this Sunday as we really kind of pull the strings together on this entire uh, sermon, this letter to the Hebrews. God, we want to get this. We want to understand this. But we know that it's not just our intellect here, it's not, it's not just for smart people. God, it's for people who are willing to hear and to listen. So it's not about how much education we have. And yet, it, it's also not um, trying to dumb it down. Instead, it's asking you through your spirit to just draw out truth and implant it in our lives to help us to live this way. So please work among us. In your name we pray. Amen. So, if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 12, and uh, we will pick right there in verse 18. 
Hebrews, we've got to remind you, is written to people who are really so beaten down that they're ready to give up. I don't know if any of you are in that place this week, but if you are, you're in good company. It is really a session of intense pastoral counseling. And he wants to help the people that he's working with to deal with the brutal realities of life. And this week, these verses really are the climax. This is where you pull the whole thing together into one place. And, and like, I, like I prayed, he's pulling these strings together because he wants to help them to understand how they can really live an unshakable life in an unstable world. How they can be giving, loving, caring people who sacrifice in the middle of pain and difficulty and how they can do that to Jesus' glory. All of us have been touched by this. All of us are in this sort of place. Now, as we step in here, the very first word that I want you to understand or notice is in verse 18. He starts with the word for. And when you run into the word for while you're reading, most of the time in the Bible, the idea that should automatically pop in your head is when you see the word for, you should translate that and think that means because. He's giving us a reason as we look at this, okay? What this word means, that word because, is our pastor is telling us something and he's telling us in this section what we need to do and then he's also taking that word and and he's going to tell us uh, why. That's what this word for means, this word because. This is why. In a second, we'll look at this. Okay, In a second, we'll see that he told us to do something and then he's going to tell us why. And, and the question is, though, do you get that? Do you understand? He's going to tell us what to do, and then he's going to tell us why. He tells us what right living looks like, and that's what Doug mentioned, right, as he was, as he was talking through. There, there's this proper use of the word religion. There's the way that we should live our lives as believers, and it's necessary as we've gone through this passage, as we've gone through this book. It's necessary. But then... Our pastor always takes it and he strengthens it with these solid timbers of truth about who God is and what he's done. Christianity is not behavioralism. Christianity is not to say Christians live like this alone. Christians do live in certain ways. But that's moralism. It's moralism. It's harmful. We're going we're to see that in this passage today. It, it's more than that that we need. And that's what's so you know, incredible about the way God's worked here. Is God doesn't just say, live this way. He's actually going to give us great reasons why we should. Where we can find stability. Those timbers of truth are going to give us a place that we can hold on to when the rest of the world just feels like it's shaking. So, what is he talking about there in verse 18 when he says, for? What's this because? Well, we've got to flip back to what we saw last week. And last week, we saw this pastor calling our lives, and he said, essentially, don't be like Esau. Whole story, you can go back to that sermon. I can't take time today. We've got to run. We've got a lot of stuff to do. But don't be like Esau. In other words, don't give, every, don't give up what God has for you for this single meal. Don't trade. In, 
live by faith in the promises of God and not for what you can just grab a hold of right now. That's the calling. That's what he's telling. But our text today is going to introduce to us why. Now, it seems, you know, it seems sometimes we read it, we go, wow, how did we get from here to there? That's what our goal is, is to try and unpack that today. Our text introduces why. Why we should not just take in as much as we can grab right now. Now, this is the longest section in our in what we're preaching on. So we're going to spend a little extra time inside of this first section, uh, 18 through 24. Okay, and we're going to break it into really two sections at this. There's this one part that's telling us what will fail. And then the second part of this, verses 22 through 24, is going to tell us what we can hold on to. What will fail and what we can hold on to. At the end, we'll get to our God as a consuming fire. All right. Now, you're going to notice this. Not only is there that verse 4, but the first thing that he says in verse 18 is, For you have not come. Just want you to glance down then to uh, verse 22. Because at the beginning of verse 22, what does it say? But you have come. You have not come, but you have come. There's this distinct dividing. You're going to see seven negative statements. You're going to see seven positive statements. Seven things that will fail and seven things that you can hold on to as we go through this passage. I will not unpack every single one of those. I want to try and get us to the overall sense of this. That's my goal as we look through here. You have not come, yet you have come. This word isn't just a, a concept of like being on a journey and going on a little trip and, hey, you made it there, okay? It's not geographic. Actually, this word is deeper than that, and what it does is it really kind of helps us to understand that you, when it says you've come, it means that you have arrived at a fundamental approach to God and to life. That's what he's describing, your fundamental approach to God and to life. You have not come and you have come. How you fundamentally approach God. Now, let's let's notice this as we as we talk about it, that all of us have a fundamental approach to how we handle things with God. Right. All of us run into this. Um, and, And probably by asking just a few questions, we can highlight this for you. Number one. How do you face life? If you want to understand your fundamental approach to God and to others, we're going to ask you the question, how do you face life? It gets more fine-tuned if we ask this, how do you face trouble? Um, How do you deal with criticism? We're beginning to kind of focus in on it, aren't we, a little bit? Because you you look at this, when, when criticism comes, how do you justify yourself as to whether you were right or you were wrong? When you face trouble, how do you know it's worth it or it's not worth it? Another question that we could ask is this one. If there was a God, and let's just assume today that there is, all right? Just even if you're not at that place, we're just going to assume that there is a God. And you stood in front of him. And he called you to account for your life. What would you talk about? What would you refer to? How would you explain that if he said, give me an account for your life? These are the kind of questions that help us unearth what is my sense. Now, I I can't speak for you on all of your answers, but I can tell you this. I'll give you a little insight into the human being. All of us somehow deep down would answer, well, I've tried my best. 
I've, I've tried my best. It's the default mode of the human heart. I, I've thought through my standards, and I've decided the type of life that a human being should really give themselves to, and I've done my best at that. So for some of us, we sit there and say, you know what? I, I've done my best. I live and I let others live. I don't get in their way. I don't interfere. I've just really pursued life with gusto. I want life to the max. And I've given everything I can to experience as many things as I can, to do as many things as I can, and not be judgmental to others. You know, I'm not getting in their way. I just want to promote freedom. Other people would look at it and say, you know what? I've lived life according to my my moral standards, very high moral standards. I'm a family man. I'm a family woman. I've I've given myself. I, you know, I've I've done that. Others might say, well, I've accomplished. I have been ruthless in my pursuit of this one thing, and I've accomplished, and I've risen to the top of my field, and I'm on top of that. Those are a couple examples of some of the way that we go through this. We, we probably say to ourselves as part of this, I've done my best. I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect in this, right? I, I, probably internally I think, well, I'm better than most. I'm, I'm a pretty good person when it comes to this. I, I've worked hard at this. I've pursued this. Well, let me just state this. No, you're not. <laughs> you're not being honest. I'm not. The way that I've looked at my life and said, this is what I really need to pursue and I've done my best. No, I haven't. I have not given myself to the energy or to the effort or to the work that it really takes to live to the set of standards that I have identified that I understand that I should be living to. Right? The danger here is that we fool ourselves. It, it's like a kid in school. How are you doing in your classes? I'm doing good. Better than most. Everybody failed that test. Right, teachers? You guys know that one. The teacher's too hard. What are we doing? You're sitting there as a parent going, you're fooling yourself. Come on, man. I know you. I know the level that you could be at this. So, so let's take maybe not an illustration there, but let's take a, a spiritual illustration. Everyone knows the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you wish that they would do to you. You don't put the energy into living that the way that you really know that you should, right? I know I don't. I don't put the energy into really like understanding others the way that I really wish that they would understand me. What do I want them to do? I want them to work hard to understand me, and I don't want to have to understand you. Right? I know that, you know, this is where we are. We're not even close to where we ought to be on this. Let's just let's take this out of the equation for a second here. Let's not lie to ourselves. Let's not live some sort of a sham where we think I'm living to my standards because the reality is no, no, you're not. And and that's what the problem is. That's what's happening here in this passage. Um. Back in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 21 and chapter 21, we, we, if you went back there, we're not going to look back there today. But if you went back there to look, you'd see the story. And what happens here is when it says, verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and a gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. What's happening is he's gone back here to Exodus 
uh, chapter 19, when God's people met with God at Mount Sinai, right? And God called them together and said, I'm going to speak to you today. Cleanse yourselves. Be ready for this. Look at your lives and come together here. This is such a sacred event that I'm going to put a boundary around the mountain. And if you touch it, you'll die. If one of your animals breaks loose and runs and touches the mountain, you need to stone it to death. This was a massive encounter. And, and it, it's scary. Actually, there's a picture that kind of goes with this. I don't know how well you can kind of see it, but remember the, the big uh, volcano there in, was it Iceland or Greenland? I don't remember where it was last year. Yeah, Iceland. You know, this is just a picture from it, but this, it's this shaking, rattling, thunder and lightning kind of a scene that, that's going on there. And God came down on Mount Sinai and he gave them ten commandments and the people drew near, but, when, but they were shaken when they stood in the presence of God. There's these seven negative images in here, you know, that, that we just read through. They're begging that no further message be spoken to them because they couldn't endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it should be stoned. Indeed, verse 21, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This is an amazing passage because when God spoke, what did they tell him to do? He said, Moses, please ask God to stop. Have God just speak to you and then you talk to us. They couldn't take it. Why? When God draws near to people, they don't get happy, they don't get excited. When God draws near to people, just like an earthquake, it shakes them to their very core. For those of you who know the Bible, think through it for a second. What happens when people meet God? They fall on their face. Woe is me, I'm a sinner. Um, Didn't Isaiah say, woe is me because I am undone. I have been shaken to pieces. I mean, think through this humanly, right? We, as good as we think we are, when you stand up against perfection, it suddenly shakes everything apart, doesn't it? People who enter the presence of God are literally shaken to pieces. Why? There's human illustrations of this, aren't there? Here, let me, uh, one dumb story just from my life. This is not facing perfection, but this just illustrates the story. I remember in high school, I played basketball. We went to a state championship. We didn't quite win that state championship. We're only 10 points off. But I went to a state championship. All right? That was impressive when I was in 12th grade. Then I went down to the college that I would attend. I was going to meet the basketball coach because I'm a basketball player. And maybe Division One's ready for me. So you go down. And as I'm headed over to meet with the basketball coach, I went past what they called the pit. And it was a basketball, you know, just like, like pickup basketball games going on. So I thought I'll go play a little bit. I got in there for one minute and realized I would never play basketball in college at all. Why? Because the guys who weren't on the team were like a hundred times better than I was. 
much less the guys that were on the team. And what did it do? It took my illusions, these things I had been telling myself about my level of play, and it shook it. And all of a sudden, I had to come to reality check. Those people were just basketball players. What happens when you stand in the place of perfection? When you're no longer one in a million, but instead you find out you're just one of 100,000. When you used to be on top, but now you find out, you know, I'm not. This is why we can't fool ourselves. This is why this passage is really so important for us. Because in the presence of God, when we come into perfection, the reason that people are really shaken deep down is because at that moment we really see the unbearable lightness of our being. Our smallness. We find out in that moment that we really live in deep denial. It's too much for us to admit how selfish we really are. It's too much for us to admit how cowardly we really are. It's too much for us to admit how weak we really are. It's too much for us to admit how evil we really are. And in fact, right now, some of you don't believe what I'm saying. And if I'm honest, I'm going to sit there and say, in a real sense, I don't even believe what I'm saying. I don't believe how evil I am. I don't believe how weak I am. I don't believe these things. It doesn't register to me. And, and, and let's go this further. Even if it's not the very presence of God that you stand in, because most of us right now have not stood in the presence of God to be shaken this way. But won't life do that to you? Sooner or later, won't life do that to you? Sooner or later, life will sooner show you what you built your life on, and it will show you that you are no longer at the top. It will kind of shake you down. Because if you built yourself on being smarter than everyone else and you decide to go to a, an Ivy League school, you show up at Cornell, what happens? You go from being the smartest kid in your school to finding out that you are not smarter than everyone else. And in fact, when I was out at, at, at Cornell visiting with Nick and Christy, some of the students there were telling me that there's a gorge, there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a cliff They've had to build a wall on this cliff face. Because students, when they get about halfway through their first semester, there are a number of them that go and take their own lives. They will kill themselves. Because they have always been this. They have always been the smartest kid. And it shakes their life. It takes away their foundation. Maybe you are just the best looking one. You know, maybe you were the, the potential supermodel. And yet, what does life do to us? Well, maybe right now you still are. But what, what happens in the future? You're not going to be. Maybe you were the best athlete. You know, maybe you were, you were this. Maybe you were that. Maybe you, were the, the, you had the right amount of money. Maybe you were the person who was really good with your money and you saved your money. But, hey, let's, let's take it. This recession for a lot of people not only took away their money, it also took away their foundation because all of a sudden it wasn't just that I don't have enough money. It's now I've lost my life. This is what I built myself on. We're going to find out in a little while that God is the God that shakes 
God is the one who, who, who breaks this down. The bottom line is if you build your life on this, you're headed for a meltdown. It won't hold. It won't hold. Build your life on your kids. It won't hold. Build your life on your health. It won't hold. Build your life on your intellect. It won't hold. This is what cannot hold on to you. That's what our author is, is, is getting at as we look at this. So what will hold? That's our second point in verses 22 through 24. All of these are really the opposite of that first section. Verses 22 through 24, it says this, but you have come. You have found your way to relate to God this way. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering. That's just such a weird phrase, you know. Um, And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the word of Abel. Instead of holding to what cannot give us foundation and strength, Instead, what we need to do is hold on here. And there's really three things that you're going to see inside of this. The first is we're going to see that we get to come to an unshakable city. We're going to come to an unshakable joy and to an unshakable identity. These three things that all of us knew. This unshakable city, unlike our culture where we make a name for ourselves really at the expense of others, where we maximize my personal happiness, God is building a different city a different society, and is based on joy and on justice. It's not built on your life is meant to benefit me. It's built on my life is given to serve you. Can you imagine what it would be like to live in a community like that? If every single person in that place said, you know what, I will give my life to serve you, to care for you, to watch out for you. When he talks about this this concept of this new Mount Zion to the city of the living God. This is a city. Did you notice this though? He says there in verse 22. You have come. What surprises you about that? I don't see the city, do you? And, and when is the city coming? In the future. So what would I write there? You will come but that's not what he says it's not what our author says our author says you've already come in a real sense you have already come to this new city to this new way of living um you you've come it's it's something it it, it is inevitable it is coming and yet you've come to it now how We need to understand that it is possible for those who have experienced the presence of God to live in community with others who have done the same to experience the peace of God. In other words, that we're setting up these new outposts. These new pictures of what it looks like to live in the new Jerusalem. To live on Mount Zion. To live in this eternal city. And you know what that outpost is? It's you. It's me. It's us living in community. 
It's a way of showing the world. It's a, it's a foretaste. It's a foretaste of what God is doing. It's a foretaste of the future city. It points at it so that people look at it and they say, wow, that's what Don's group did, didn't they? When Don read that testimony today to share with us, and and it takes such humility to share something like that. Because we're all concerned, well, I don't want you to stand up and think that I'm thinking I'm a great guy. That's not what Don, you know, I know that's a concern that Don would have as they're sharing this. And yet we need to share these things with each other because what that, what this mom saw in that missional community was a foretaste. Not a city built on, hey, we can take from her the way that this world has taken from her. Instead, a place where peace and joy, people who said, let my money, which this world would say is mine, let our money be yours and let us serve you. It's a taste of what's coming. It's a beautiful image for them. And it's also a beautiful image for her. We get to taste this unshakable city right here, right now in the Lakes region. These kids all over the world, these slaves, children and adults, have the opportunity the possibility to be able to taste this. To taste what it's like to have people that maybe they don't even know who give their money and give their time and give their energy to rescue them from the world that they've experienced and to be set free. That means that what Doug and the band are doing is massive. It's massive. So this unshakable city. Notice, though, that there's also this sense of unshakable joy. You've not only come to the city, right? But you've come to this innumerable angels in festal gathering. Again, one of those phrases, you sit there and go, what? Well, here's the key thing. Where do you find angels? Who are they around? God. When you go in the presence of God, you see angels. Uh, I was just reading, again, in, in part of my quiet time, it's been awesome because I've been reading through Exodus. And right there on the, on the curtain in, in, the, in the tabernacle, they're supposed to Im, Im, emboss, you know, to, to sew in, to, to, to bring into that, into that curtain cherubim. There on, on top of the, on the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, what was that? It's two angels, right? These angels kind of indicate the presence of God. So it's not just about, hey, I get to hang out with angels. The idea is that these angels symbolize the presence of God. There's this unshakable joy, and you and I have the opportunity of being brought into the presence of God. Instead of trauma and shattering when we experience the presence of God, though, we get to experience what? This is a really a word that means celebration. There's a sense of party that is all over this passage. When we look at this festal gathering, which I'm really not, you know, a festal, I have not used that word except for this morning. But you think celebration, you think party, that's the, that's the illustration, that's the picture here. We've got to ask ourselves, well, why? Okay, real briefly, because we don't have time to, to really dig in this as deep as we want to. But why? The question that comes is, why did God create people? Why does God want you in his life? There's two options. One option is to say, God's lonely. 
and he wants friends. Is that the biblical answer? Absolutely not. Why? Because God has always lived in community long before creation. God did not create because he lacked. God created because he had so much to give. It was out of the overflow of God's love that he created humans and invited them to come in and to be with him. God isn't calling us to be with him to get love. God has created us to give us love. So the calling into his life is not to say, come meet some need in me that I can't find. Instead, he's God and he says, come, let me meet some need in you that you have always wanted to be filled That is what God is calling us to. An unshakable joy. Finally, this unshakable identity. We we don't only come to this festal gathering, uh, innumerable angels and festal gathering, but we also come, verse 23, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God. Unshakable identity. You know what? You and I see ourselves as an accumulation of what everyone else has said about us. Right? What our mom said about us. Maybe what our dad said about us. Maybe what our coworker said about us. Maybe what a sibling said about us, what a teacher said about us, what a coach said about us, maybe what a newspaper said about you. I don't know, maybe TV, maybe maybe one of these places. You and I see ourselves, we find ourselves as this accumulation of what others have said about us, and some of it we hope that's true. (laughs) You know? There's some of it that we're like, boy, I hope that's true. I'm excited about that. There's other things that we really hope aren't true. Things that we hope that we're really wrong about. But this passage is talking about an identity that's not based on what others have said about us. It gives us an unshakable identity. Why? Because just look at the look at the logic. Look at the ways. We are the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. What's the what's the significance of firstborn? You know, there are questions about how to approach this text. No question about that. Um, a lot of the wording in here is so dense and thick, and there, there's a lot of really neat things. But think through this with me. Firstborn. What was the significance in the culture when Jesus lived of being the firstborn? What did you get? You got the inheritance, right? You got the lion's share. It didn't matter how many siblings a family had, the firstborn got most of it, right? Because you want that name, that lineage to continue on. Just this wealth that you've put together, you want it to carry on. So you put it there and it went to the firstborn. How did you get to be firstborn? You worked really hard in school and you, and you, and you studied, right? Or maybe you were, the, you were the beautiful one in the family, right? You just walked around and said, look, I'm more attractive than the rest of my family. That way I get to be the firstborn. Was it because you were the best athlete? What did you do to get to be the firstborn? You were born. First. (laughs) Wow. And what did you have to do for the rest of your life to continue to be the firstborn? I guess stay alive. You know? 
But, but in other words, do you see, this isn't something that someone has earned on their own. This is something that, that has been given, has been granted to be the firstborn from those who are enrolled in heaven. Not because of our work or our status or our achievement, but simply because of our birth. Who are you today? How do you identify yourself? Some of us, we need to give up a little bit about what other people say and think about us. We need to cling to this truth. Some of us parents need to give up what our three-year-old has said about us. Some of us parents need to give up what our 17-year-old said about us. So you can go the categories in your brain, right? But what needs to be defined here is that you have an unshakable identity. If we hold to these, this unshakable city, this unshakable joy, this unshakable identity, what's that going to do for us? It's going to free us to live the way that the author of Hebrews is calling us to live. Because if I have an unshakable city, I can give away things here. Why? Because I'm not losing anything. And and if I have an unshakable joy, I can serve in the mud. I can serve in hard places. I can continue on in this marriage. I can keep going with this difficult child. I think of, of, again, this this woman that that you guys have ministered to in that in that Poland missional community. But caring for a child with with cystic fibrosis for, for children with deep needs, that has got to be hard and heavy. But if I have an unshakable joy, I can keep going. If I have an unshakable identity, it doesn't mean it matters what people say about me. Have you ever gone and given yourself and helped in something? And then once you have helped, you've walked away glad that you've done it. And then someone says something and it poisons the well and you think, fine. I'm not going to help again. In other words, what they said has been so hurtful or painful. What I'm saying is we're called instead to be able, God has given you the ability to be healed of that. Not defined by that. So here's where this gets a little interesting, a little dicey. Because that last thing that he says is you've also come to God, the judge of all. And you kind of see this theme follow through. What sounds a little funky about this? You've got angels. You've got a city. You've got this new identity. All these great things. But we've got God, the judge. How many of us love that picture? Why? God the judge, and it builds on there, doesn't it? Mediator of a new covenant. Sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Verse 25, see to it then that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Here's a calling to action again. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, when God came and spoke to them and said, here's what I want you to do, and they said, we'll do everything you tell us to do, and then they didn't do it. And if they didn't escape that, if they had to face that shaking... 
He says, much less will we escape it if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he's promised yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens. I'm going to shake everything that exists, God says. And that phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. There's going to be this final shaking. And everything that is valuable, everything that is weighty, everything that is meaningful, everything that is eternal will last. And everything that is not will be gone. We'll confirm that. That is the things in the middle of 27. Yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. We just confirmed what we just said. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, because our God is a consuming fire. What does fire do to materials? It destroys some of them. What does fire not destroy? Okay, it destroys paper. Pretty good at that. It destroys wood. Pretty good at that. What doesn't it destroy? Yeah, metals. Heavy. Solid. Long-lasting things like rocks. What does it do? What, is, what does fire do to metal? It purifies. Right? If it gets hot enough, it actually removes the impurities. That metal gets more precious. God is a consuming fire. God is the judge. God is the judge. So what do we do with this? Just to round this out. How how should we think about this? In other words, is God threatening me? Do what I want you to do, or I'll take everything away from you. I guess it depends on where you're looking at it. If you have that unshakable city, if you have that unshakable joy, if you have that unshakable identity, will this shaking remove anything from your life? No. But if your life is made of the things that we own and the things that we buy and the things that we go to Walmart to get, if your life is made of those things, what will this shaking, what will this fire do to those things? Brand new 70-inch plasma, you know, TVs. What will it do to that? It'll be gone. If I live for those things, what will that fire, what will that shaking do? My life will be gone, right? whole world will collapse but if my life is not in that place if my life is built on this you know where we're talked about there in verse 23 the mediator uh, uh 24 jesus the mediator of a new covenant the sprinkled blood if my life is built there what do i lose See, here's the interesting thing about this judge picture here. 
we know, even from Hebrews, the judge of the earth came, what? Not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. We know that this consuming fire, the God who's a consuming fire, did not come to consume us, but instead He let that fire come down on Him. To prove the weightiness. To prove the excellence. The eternality. He took judgment in upon himself. Why? So that we can gratefully receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And then we're actually freed up to be able to offer acceptable worship with reverence and with awe. The judge came already so that we could get in. So we would be allowed entrance in. C.S. Lewis said this, Apparently then, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in, in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fantasy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all of our merits and also the healing of that old ache. This consuming fire God came so that we could be brought into this city. This consuming, this, this judge of all came and died so that we could be brought into a new life, into a new um, uh, identity and an unshakable joy. That's what our pastor wants his people to know. And that's what I want us to know. It's not about he who has the most toys at the end of his life wins. It's about what will last. Lord, help us. I know, I know that there's some who today, I'm sure they're wrestling with this. And what we want to do is just ask that you would help all of us to be able to cling to, to trust, to live to the promises, to believe you. God, to go and be encouraged through this, that it's not about how good I am at this. I don't have to build my life on my abilities. Instead, you have invited me in. You've invited me to come. You've invited me to be connected to you in an eternal, amazing life-changing, world-changing kind of way. God, give us hope. Let us listen to You. Let us be willing to repent. In Your name we pray. Amen.